When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McBillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, my guest uh, in this episode is someone who has uh, gotten to the very top of a very competitive sport. He's featured in the top 20 of the official world golf rankings. Uh, look, his many achievements uh, I could list through, but a couple stand out. He's beaten Tiger Woods in match play uh, on more than one occasion. Uh, he's been successful uh, in tournaments right around the world, particularly here in the Australasia region. And uh, pleased to say uh, he has come back to Australia after 12 or so years uh, living abroad in Florida. But he is a WA boy, so it's uh, with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Nick O'Hearn. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be back in Australia, let me tell you. Yeah, 12 years away in Florida. Um, that's a decent stint. It is, isn't it? Yeah, we, uh, I guess we moved over there beginning of 2007 to play the PGA Tour in the, in the United States. And then um, life just kind of went on from there. And I actually stopped playing full-time about five years ago and, mm. and was looking to, at some point, head back to Australia. But uh, the housing market wasn't that great over there. So <laughs> it, it did take us a while to sell. And eventually we, uh, we thought it's now or never because our eldest is getting to that age that if we stayed in the U.S., yeah. Um, you know, we'd be there for good, and that was never our plan. Okay. How old are the kids, Nick? Uh, 15 and 13. Two, two, uh, two girls, uh, both with full-on American accents, even though they were, born, yeah. they were born here in Australia, but they've lived there most of their lives. So. Okay. But they're, uh, they're very unique here because everyone loves their accents. So over there, it's just normal. <laughs> Is it starting to subside now that you're back? No, no, they're still full-on American accents. So <laughs> it's, uh, I don't think it'll change because they're, they're at an age where yeah, it's kind of it's, pretty it's well developed. In. Yeah. So do they consider themselves American then, or are they just a little bit confused right now? <laughs> I think they're a little confused, yeah. I mean, it's strange because, you know, they used to go to every day at school over there. They stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag and everything. And we had right? Anzac Day here the other day, and they go, oh, it's fantastic that you have this just once a year. I mean, it really makes it more meaningful. Whereas over there, it kind of, it's a bit yeah. know, monotonous when they mm. do that. Yeah. Um, obviously, you were there for professional reasons and, and being close to the action there as a, as a pro golfer. But uh, life in Florida, uh, what was it like? Uh, interesting. Yeah, it was. I mean, we were quite close to Disney. So we, <laughs> you know, we were 20 minutes away and everyone thinks, oh, it must be fantastic. It's like, well, we've been there a couple of times and yeah, that's enough. So, mm. um, you know, once you've seen all that place, it's, it's uh, you know, you try and stay away as much as possible if you yep. do live there. But Florida itself was great because it was a, a very easy, well, Orlando in particular was a very easy city to travel in and out of. So golf-wise, it was fantastic. The weather was pretty good all year round so I could practice and, and play. 
And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's more of a Queensland type of climate. So, you know, it's got that sort of tropical feel to it, but you know, the, the United States is a very convenient country. You can get anywhere very quickly. And uh, for golfing purposes, it was very, very good. When you were at your, your busiest though, on the, on the golfing circuit, I mean, how many weeks a year would you actually get to spend at home in Florida? Uh, probably it'd be less than half. Um, it really, and you know, I'd come back here and play the Australian events as well. So that might be a month trip. And you know, if I played probably mid 20 range, you know, mid 25 tournaments a year over there. So there's on the road. So it's close to 30 weeks a, a year on the road. Yeah. Um, and it just depends on, on other things that are going on as well with mm. you know, kids and all that sort of stuff. So, yep. uh, yeah, we, I wasn't home very much. I have to point out, though, when you say you've come home, you've come back to Melbourne. What's that about? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying home, I'm back in Australia. But, yeah, we've come to Melbourne for, for a few different reasons. Um, a couple of years ago, I started mentoring golfers and young professionals, uh, college players and things like that in the U.S. And I was talking to the Golf Australia guys uh, quite a while ago. And there's a good opportunity to possibly work with some of their uh, elite players and the high performance teams. And, um, and Melbourne is kind of where it's at in that sense. So yeah. there's a few more opportunities that I want to do here in Australia with my golf and helping other people out in that sense. My mm. wife's an artist, so Melbourne's a great it's uh, a good city fit. For, uh, for the art culture. And we're just wanting something different. And we've loved Melbourne, you know, from, from when we first came here in the mid-90s. Yeah, okay. We'll give you that. It's not a okay. bad place. <laughs> <laughs> I got... Don't forget us over here, though. I'm still um, a Dockers fan. It's I was okay. going to say, yeah, you know, you were a, a number one ticket holder for the Fremantle Dockers uh, in 2006, weren't you? I was, yeah. No, it was, it was a great, uh, you know, great to be asked by the club. Unfortunately, I never got to see a game that season, but my parents <laughs> certainly uh, saw every game and had a pretty good seat. So, yeah. uh, but it's great to see them doing so well uh, mm. so far this season. Can I go back to your, your early days? Because you, you seem to be one of those people that was just ridiculously talented at sport generally. Um, you, you know, you obviously chose golf in the end, um, but you played uh, pretty high-level baseball. Your father was uh, an, an outstanding baseballer. Um, I'm guessing you were probably pretty good at, uh, at footy as well. Tennis was also uh, one of your pursuits for a little while. Um, obviously, golf won out, though. How close were you to pursuing those others that I mentioned? Uh, it's interesting because almost, golf was almost the one I wasn't the best at. I mean, I was I was a pretty good baseballer, uh, played state level there. Tennis, you know, I, I never really played tournaments, but I know I beat state level players. Yeah. And golf, I never actually made a state team or anything. So as a junior, um, as you mentioned, my dad, he was very very good baseballer, pitched for Australia, and actually held the world record at one in, at one point, I think, for most innings pitched in a game of Is nineteen right? innings. So, wow. Yeah, phenomenal. And my brother also, he was very good. He was better than me at golf, better than me at baseball. Um, but the funny thing about sports people is usually when you, when you look through family history, most athletes are the youngest in the family. So they're always trying to beat the older sibling. Yep. Uh, and in that case, that was me. So I was very determined in, in, in that regard. But, <laughs> but as a young golfer, the lowest handicap I got down to was a two handicap when I was 16. Um, and then I was on a four handicap when I turned pro when I was 19. So you went uh, backwards. I went backwards, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I came in the back door. So I, I wasn't good enough to play for a living, but I wanted to be involved in golf in some way. And yep. I did a traineeship uh, out at the Marangaroo Golf Course and then worked out at Caramara as well. Yeah, right. Okay. Because I mean, golf, one of those things that a lot of people play, a lot of people spend a lot of time playing golf, uh, and there are lots of handy golfers around, but going to that next level that you got to, 
you know, only only really a few people in the grand scheme of things get to that level. How do you make the that extra leap up the up the up the leaderboard? It's it's an interesting thing. If you could put your finger on it, you know, everyone would be doing it, obviously. But and and when I look back at maybe when I was a junior and when I was a young pro, I would look at myself now and go, well, he's kind of got no chance. So you can, you can never measure what's inside of someone. I think. And and my wife always said to me, I've I've never met anyone more determined uh, in the game of golf or in sport in general. So I think that was a big factor. I think all the the high-level um, athletes are just have incredible determination and, and a will to just keep persevering. Yep. Um, in my case, it was more a case of I finally found the right people to uh, to help me with my game. Um, firstly, with a, a swing coach who the, was the teaching professional at Mount Lawley Golf Club, a guy called Neil Simpson. And then a, a mental coach as well, Neil McLean, who was at the University of WA. And uh, I think at the time he was working with the Eagles and my wife uh, rang them up and said, who's your sports psych? Because uh, my husband needs some help. <laughs> I can't do so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If we want to stay married, uh, you need to help him. So, <laughs> And I was kind of meandering along in my early 20s playing yeah. pro-ams and really not doing much. And I yeah. think I had a, I had one of those you know, moments of, right, okay, I need to get my act together here. Yeah. Let's make a plan and uh, and get some direction going. And once I, I had that plan and that direction and made some goals of what I wanted to achieve in the game, then things started to crystallize and I, I sort of slowly started climbing the ladder, so to speak. Yeah. 1994, you turned professional. For those who don't understand how the golf uh, circuits work, what does that actually mean when you turn pro? Well, when I turned pro, I, be- I became a trainee professional. So I was going to be, become a club professional, work in a, in a shop like, you know, the, a lot of the golf clubs around you know, around the suburban area, maybe Mount Lawley or Marangaroo yep. where I was a trainee pro. And you learn how to uh, teach, uh, repair golf clubs, uh, run a business, so to speak, and, okay. and become a club professional in that sense. So you can turn pro so you're and, employed and become by a, a club. Ex- yeah, I was employed. Oh, I had employees. A professional contract, if you like. Yeah. yeah, sort of. Yeah, Tim yeah. Crosby and Craig Duncan were my bosses back in the day, and uh, they were great guys, and I learnt the ropes through them. So, if you want to turn pro uh, in a playing level, um, nowadays I believe you have to go through the qualifying schools, and there are certain targets that you have to reach. And obviously, if you want to play for a living, you need to go through that. Whereas, if you want to teach and become a club professional, that's a little different. Okay, um, and then I suppose the next step for you was uh, was qualifying for. The European Tour again. For those who don't understand quite how the golfing world works, uh, we've got a, the, the US-based PGA Tour. You've got the European Tour. Uh, you've got the PGA Tour of Australasia, and, and probably several others. But uh, the, the European Tour was where you headed to first. Um, just, just tell us sort of you know how they are different from each other. Sure. Yeah. Well, every, each each tour around the world has has a qualifying school once a year, and basically, if you want to play on that tour, you have to go through that that tournament, so to speak. And they have different levels. Uh, the U.S. has three stages. Europe has, I think, three now. Australia might have a couple, maybe even three. I'm not quite sure. But, um, you know, the U.S. tour is seen as the premier tour in the world. Europe is, is very close. I think if you take the top 20 or 30 players off both tours, they're a very similar standard. It's more the depth in the U.S. is a little stronger, I think. And then here in Australia, you know, obviously we have a lot of good young players coming through. And it's 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 not that it's... Uh, seen as a weaker tour, it's just it's a great tour to develop your game and, and almost like a launching pad uh, pad to get it get yeah. to the next stage. So for myself, you know, when I was my my sort of coming out event was in '97 when I, I I ended up qualifying to be on the Australian Australasian tour, 
and I did well in the Australian Open and then um, uh, thought, well, I need to get out of here uh, to see what else I can do. So I went to the US to try and qualify over there, but I missed, which was actually a blessing in disguise because at that point, I just wasn't good enough, I don't think, to play in the US. And instead, I went to Europe and, and got my card there and sort of, uh, and sort of things took off from that. So you're a, you're a man in your 20s. Uh, you've got mm-hmm. your, your pro card and you're suddenly on the European tour. That must have been a, a pretty good time to be Nick Ahern. <laughs> well, it's and, and it's eye-opening. And I was a married man too. I mean, my wife and I, yeah. Alana, we, we, we got married very young. I was 22. She was 21. And, and it was more a case of I don't think she realized what she wanted to do with her life. So uh, I'll just follow you around and see what you want to do. <laughs> now she certainly knows what she wants to do. Um, but, yeah, the I went, it's funny. I mean, it, it was a story from that qualifying school. It's like, you know, 150 guys, 200 guys, whatever it was, teared up for, for 30 cards. And, and you're playing for your job for the entire year. Yeah. And it's a, it's a six-round tournament. And then after four rounds, they had a cutoff where they cut to the top 70 guys. And I came to the last hole of that, you know, the fourth round, needing to make a birdie to, to advance to the last two days. So if I don't make a birdie on this hole... I don't have a job next year in Europe, which That's, is a yeah. pretty, it's pretty intensive a f- sort of thing. Fair amount yeah. riding on it. Yeah. There was, and luckily it was a par five. I was in a greenside bunker in two, so I only had to get it up and down for the birdie, and I actually hold it for an eagle. So it was just one of those wow moments. It was which meant almost to be. Changed. It was meant to be, and mm. my wife and I looked at each other and thought, okay, we're on the right path. And then mm. over the next two days, just with that confidence, um, I played really well, secured my card, and, and the first year in Europe, is always the toughest. The first year on any tour is always the toughest because it's always, it's new. Um, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where to stay. And, and Europe, it's just a, you know, an ass, it's an assortment for the senses because mm. every week is a different culture, a different language, a different currency. I think we got food poisoning a couple of times just through not eating at the right places. Yep. And it, it just opens your eyes to the world. And we learned so much in that first year. And yeah. And it just, uh, if you can get through the first year and maintain your job for the following year, then it becomes a little easier. It, it sounds a lot like my backpacking experiences through Europe, just without the golf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was probably well, that's kind of what it was consume a little us, bit yeah. more alcohol on the way. <laughs> we well, to... not at the Irish Open. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about uh, these adventures. We do need to take a break, though, Nick. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories uh, with Nick O'Hearn in this edition. Thanks to Baron O'Day. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are featuring the story of a uh, local born boy, a professional golfer who's been and played golf at all corners uh, of this earth, Nico Hearn. Uh, who's back on home soil after uh, more than a decade living in the U.S. Uh, Nick, you were just bringing us up to speed there, sort of your first year or so uh, on the European tour. I imagine at first, you know, as you say, it's a, it's an almost an overload. Um, different cultures, different food, currencies, courses you've never played, people you've never met, all of that. Um, how long did it take for the, for the novelty of that uh, to wear off? Well, I mean, I think the first year, my wife and I, because we haven't hadn't been to Europe together, it was just the whole year was was phenomenal. Mm. Um, we we really enjoyed it, and we actually got down to it was uh, about my fourth last tournament was in Switzerland, and if I had a good week there, then I then I kept my job for next week. Uh, mm. Sorry, for, for the following year. So 
that was where I secured my card. I played really well, and the relief was just like, oh, how good is this? You know, we've we've grinded it out all year. It's been really tough. She's been caddying my whole the whole year, by the way. This my wife. Your was wife still my is caddy. your caddy. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, because. Well, I didn't really trust anyone else at this point because, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd been looking, you know, I'd been sort of looking at other players and their caddies and seeing what they do behind the scenes. And, and she was as well because she didn't want to do it for an extended period. Yeah, It was more just to get me going. And, you know, financially it was, it was obviously a good decision yeah. at the time because we couldn't afford much at that point. But, um, and I'd watch other players and their caddies and go, Hmm, yeah, he doesn't look like someone I'd want in my bag and <laughs> I would cross his name off. And then the following year after about two or three months into the season, we were at uh, a tournament in the middle of England uh, at the Belfry, which is where they used to hold the Ryder Cup. And, uh, my wife, you know, we were at a point where it was like, okay, we need to find someone quick. Otherwise we're going <laughs> to kill each other out here because, you know, Have married a couples, in the middle of a yeah. fairway. <laughs> <laughs> Being a boss on the golf course, you know, it doesn't quite translate on the, uh, on, off the course, obviously. And she ended up finding a, an Englishman, uh, his player had just missed the cut. And on the Saturday morning we thought, yeah, let, let's grab him to caddy for the weekend and, and see, see if he does any good. And when I rocked up in the locker room, my shoes were shined, the clubs were clean. I thought, oh man, this is my guy. <laughs> Cause I've been doing it the whole time before that. <laughs> That's a fascinating dynamic though. Husband and wife, golfer, caddy, um, dare I ask. <laughs> it does not the, happen I mean, you're often. The, you're the golfer out there, but uh, who was the boss? Um, I mean, was well, she was she uh, a keen golfer herself? Was she able to say, you know, you need to play a seven iron from here, and you say, no, I can make <laughs> it with an eight? Did you have those no, sorts of conversations, or no? Ta- no? Tactic- tactically, it was all up to me. Mentally, she was phenomenal. Like she could tell when I was getting in a really bad mood, and I mean, yeah. I, I won't. There was one time in the Australian Open when I was leading, and this was in '97, I think it was. And I was getting off to a bad start in the third day and she knew I was getting down and basically she, you know, in no uncertain terms, told me to pull my head out of my ass and, <laughs> but with a couple of extra words yeah. thrown in there and, uh, you know, just start playing golf like I knew how I could. And, and I did. And, yeah. and she was great at that. She, could, she mm. could bring me back out of the abyss, which golfers tend to go into. Oh, yeah. A head game as much mm. as anything, isn't it? It is. Can I ask you, if you don't mind me asking, you know, when, you, when you are starting out like that, um, and you mentioned, you know, you have to do well in a, a particular tournament to make sure you've got a job essentially next year. Are you, are you making good money at this point in time? Are you, are you having to pay for your own flights, find your own hotels? Because just the logistics of that and the cost of that, I'm guessing, would be pretty astronomical. It is high, yeah. It's No, it, it, we are paying for everything. You know, flights, uh, hotel, accommodation, um, food, caddy. Mm. You name it, tournament entries, the, the, the whole deal. Um, you know, but the rewards are good if you do play well. So mm. the problem is if, if you miss the cut and you don't play well, well, you make no money whatsoever, which is the very unique thing about golf. Mm. Um, I think in other sports, people are on contracts and they're guaranteed a, you know, a sum for the, for the year. But if obviously they don't play well, they're going to get dropped. But it's a week-by-week deal in, in golf. Um, the top players are getting sponsorship yeah. for, to use clubs and wear clothing and things like that. But when you're starting out – that sort of thing is very minimal and it really is, well, you might have a putt on the, on the 36th hole, which is after two days, they make the cut might be from four feet and you go, well, if I miss this, I'm not making any money this week. And if I make it, well, I know I'm going to make something and I'll at least cover my expenses. And if I have a good weekend, well, Hey, you know, we can keep climbing the ladder. So it's very unique in that sense. Very fine and and merciless margins that you're dealing with. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Going from, uh, from Europe, to the US tour, how much of a step up was that for you? Did you feel ready when you eventually made the jump? I was because 
you know, through the early 2000s in Europe, my game just kept getting better and better. And, and at the start of every year, I'd sit down with uh, Neil Simpson and, and Neil McLean, the, you know, the two guys that I mentioned earlier. And we'd sort of make out a plan of, okay, how, how do I improve this year? What do I need to work on? And, and my goal every year was just to, you know, increase my, or bring down my world ranking, just get better as a player, learn more as I went along. I didn't try and jump too many rungs of the ladder at one time. It was always just one at a time, which is probably looking back, one of the best things I ever did. I didn't try to, you know, get out of my comfort zone too much early on. Um, that is something you do need to do as you go along. I think you need to, you know, challenge yourself to do different things, but it can also scare the heck out of you as well yeah. if you're not ready for it. So I always made sure I was prepared and I'd, I'd done as much work as I possibly could going forward. But the US tour was a bit of a different beast. And uh, when I started going across there, I was in the top 50 in the world through playing mm. in Europe. So that was always good. And I started getting invites into all the majors, you know, the Masters, British Open, US Open, US PGA. And then I'd also get seven invites because of my world ranking. So I got a taste of it through, I think, 2005, 2006. And because I have that security blanket in a way of being in Europe, it wasn't that big a deal if I didn't play well in the U.S. Whereas mm. if I was only playing in the U.S., then it would have been a big deal. Yep. So those two years, I kind of got used to the whole environment of being out there. And I was, you know, I was pretty good at that time. I think I got down to about 16 in the world and I'd beaten Tiger a couple of times or, or once at that point. And I felt like, you know, my game was really at a pretty elite level. So when we made the decision to go over there full time, it wasn't that big of a jump for me. I'd yep. already gotten used to the whole situation. Yeah. And you're talking about beating Tiger when Tiger was properly Tiger. <laughs> yeah, he was number, yeah, he <laughs> was was number one in the world. Yeah. Pre, pre-collapse um, in every sense yes. of, the, of the world. Yeah, exactly. World, uh, fought, <laughs> uh, poor old Tiger. I mean, he's had a win recently, hasn't he? But uh, it's it's been few and far between of late. But uh, beating... Beating Tiger when he was at his peak, I mean, that's that's something that really only a handful of people can claim to have done. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's in match play too, which, yeah. which is what I've done. The, 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 no one's beaten him twice, which I've done. People have beaten him once, so they sort of go, oh, that's a bit of, maybe it's a fluke. But the second time, it's funny, he was going for a record the second time of the most tournament wins in a row. Um, yeah. Byron, Byron Nelson back in the, you know, in the 30s and 40s, he won 11 tournaments in a row. And Tiger was trying to beat that record. He was going for seven in a row at this point at the World Match Play. And, and I beat him there. So I don't think he was too happy about that. <laughs> um, and I got some pretty good abuse from the uh, from the galleries. But in a way, it was almost like a bit of a footy atmosphere. It was kind mm. of fun just to get heckled, you know, walking from the green to the next tee. Mm. And luckily, my wife wasn't out there because she would have she would have uh, not been happy with the crowd and probably would have kicked up the sticks. <laughs> what <laughs> she was, was watching in the hotel room. <laughs> what was what was Tiger like? I, was, I mean, because I, I imagine the, the interactions that you have uh, on the golf course uh, when you're two competing pros uh, are something that most people probably couldn't couldn't relate to, obviously never privy to. Mm. Um, how were the interactions you have uh, with someone like well, Tiger, particularly when he is at the peak of his powers? I played with him in both scenarios. Once was in a stroke play tournament and then the other couple of times was in match play. Match play is a different beast anyway because you're just trying to beat one person. You're yeah. not trying to beat the whole field. So in that sense, we didn't really talk much. I mean, yeah. you know, in, said g'day on the first tee and thanks for the game at the end. And luckily I was on the good good side of that. But he was all class in that respect. Yeah. You know, saying congratulations, play well in your next round. When, when I played with him in a stroke play event, he's a little more open as you're walking down the fairways. You can talk and have a bit of a chat about things. And he was fine. Um, but, you know, he, at that point, he was <laughs> number one in the world for a reason. Yeah. He, had a, he had an amazing aura about him. And I think the great players in no matter what sport it is, they have this aura about them. And he yeah. has, he has like a, it's almost like an, an aura of invincibility. And 
and he won tournaments just through that aura of people seeing his name go up on the leaderboard mm. and then almost crumbling themselves. Mm. So in the match play sense, I didn't see it as I was playing Tiger Woods. I just played some other guy that I was trying to beat. And I made, made a point of it, funnily enough, in my first match of not watching him tee off because it's really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first hole the first hole of our first match play, he hits this thing and it's like a cannon went off. And I look yeah. at my caddy and he's, his mouth's open going, oh my wow. gosh. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I'm not going to have a, I'm not going to watch him tee off for the rest of the day. Yeah. And, and it yeah. paid dividends. That way I, I didn't become consumed by how good. Yeah. Obviously he did something right. Can I ask in the, the, the elite golfing community then to see his capitulation, what was, what was that like? Um, you know, being on the, on the circuit, this guy who had this awe about him, this invincibility, um, just this awesome swing. He just seemed to have it all, didn't he? Um, mm. You know, the number one ranking, the tournament wins behind him, the lifestyle, the wealth, he had everything and then kind of lost just about all of it. What was that it, like it, to, 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 to be a part of, you know, given that you're out on the circuit with him? Well, we actually saw it a lot closer than most because we lived in the same community. And, um, you know, we we were at a place called Isleworth, which is uh, in Windermere, Florida. And we knew his, now his ex-wife, Elon, quite well. So Mm. it was, you know, it was a little close to home, all that sort of stuff. And and I guess the biggest thing was more more so just disbelief. We, I just couldn't believe what was going on behind the scenes because I'd never really heard much of, you know, usually you might hear a rumor here or there, but I'd never heard anything about Tiger. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And the amount of hours he put in on the range and the practice, I'm trying to think, where did he fit everything else in? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like a different, it was like a different uh, a life he had going on, yeah. which it obviously was. And I think that was the, the biggest thing on tour. Inside the locker room, no one really knew about it. Yeah. And, uh, when it all came out, it was like, wow, this is, yeah. this is amazing. And then to see him, you know, try to make comeback after comeback, it was, you know, he's, he, look, golf-wise, he's, obviously going to go down as the best or one of the best in, in the history of the game. You know, mm. incredible talent golf-wise. Shocking husband, but a great guy. <laughs> so you've got to admire the golf side of things, yeah. that's for sure. Uh, when you see him back uh, holding trophies aloft, do you, do you wish him well? Is he, has, he, has he done enough to kind of restore that aura, do you think? It's funny in sport, you know, when, when people who have, you know, possibly done things that uh, are not, you know, socially acceptable or acceptable in any way, as soon as, like, and the example was in cricket, someone took five wickets, oh, they're a hero again. And in yeah. golf, if you win a tournament, you're a hero again. They kind of, all the other things seem to get swept under the, under the rug, I guess. But it's been a long time. I think he's, he's obviously tried to piece his life back together. And as I say, we kind of know uh, his, his ex-wife and the kids a little more than most. So he's a great dad um, to them. And you can only just, you know, wish him all the best going mm. forward. And, and it's great for the game of golf. All these guys now that are coming out, you know, like the Justin Thomases, the Jordan Spieth and all that. They're, they're out there playing probably because of Tiger. Mm. And there was a point there where they, I remember that someone made a comment, oh, I wish we could play against Tiger when he was in his prime. And mm. David Duval, I don't know if you remember who David Duval was. He, he said, the hell you do. <laughs> because you'll just get swept under the floor. And the beautiful thing about it now is they're all going to get their chance because he's, 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 back, he's on, back. He's not at his peak, but he'll be mm. pretty close to it. Yeah. He won't dominate like he ever used mm. to, but... It's going to be exciting this next year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nico Hearn is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories, thanks to uh, Baron O'Day. Back with more here on 882 6BR very soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day.
This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are sharing the inspiring story of golfer Nick Ahern. Nick, we were talking a bit about uh, Tiger Woods. Let's talk about you again. <laughs> <laughs> and some of your successes. I suppose it's fair to say you had uh, your greatest success uh, close to home uh, in Australia and generally in the Australasia uh, PGA region. Uh, tell us about um, one of your more, more famous victories, 2006, uh, when you won the Australian PGA. Um, you mentioned before you had a, a, a great shot in Europe holding out from a, a bunker. Um, you, you pulled the same trick, didn't you, in 2006 <laughs> to take that title? I did, yeah. It was a strange day because it was like one of those days where I have possibly the worst moment I've ever had in golf followed by the best moment I've ever had in golf. Let's and start with the I, worst. Well, the worst, the worst was, well, I, I was leading going down the last hole by a stroke and I had a three-foot putt to win the golf tournament. And I completely pulled the putt. You know, mentally I wasn't there and it was my own fault and, and I missed it and I just wanted the whole, the golf hole to swallow me up and disappear but that lasted about five or ten minutes, and as I'm marking my card, I'm knowing I'm going into a playoff against Peter Lonard, and my caddy and I had a good chat, and he says, mate, come on, let's, let's get it together. We need to, uh, we need to get over that and, and move on, and, and luckily I did, and then we, it was a four-hole playoff, and on that fourth hole, I hit the bunker shot of my life, which went in, and you know, you kind of look back and go, well, almost a, the putt was almost a blessing, because um, otherwise I would have won on that final hole, and it, you know, the, the whole drama wouldn't have continued. I think Channel 7 got pretty good ratings out of it in the end. <laughs> and uh, it was just an amazing day. So, yeah. Um, and the, the best part about it is, was my family, my kids, my parents were all there. I was up in Coolham in Queensland and we had some, uh, we had some fun that night. That's for I, sure. I bet you did. Uh, of your victories, Nick, does that stand out for you? It does. Yeah. The funny thing in my career is I never had many victories. Uh, at, a, at a lower tournaments I did, but on the Australasian tour I only had two. And then in Europe and the US I didn't win. I I came very close. My game was, funnily enough, built on consistency. Mm. So I hit a lot of fairways, a lot of greens, not a long hitter, and I chipped and putted well. So that's going to have a lot of good results. And the media always used to say to me, you know, look, you're top 20 in the world, yet you've hardly ever won. And I said, well, I I see that as a compliment because it just means I'm a very steady, very consistent golfer and I get the most out of what I have, whereas they sort of thought, well, well, you shouldn't be ranked that high. Um, so it didn't bother me that much, uh, you know, at the time. And, and the best thing was the other times what I really loved, you know, in my golfing career was playing the President's Cups in yeah. 2005, 2007. And, and those events were just, just phenomenal. But that, but that 2006 Australian PGA victory was probably the highlight in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your team appearances as well because you mentioned the President's Cup there. So you were part of the international team in uh, 05 and 07, uh, also the World Cup. Uh, representing Australia in, correct me if I'm wrong here, 2004 and 2007, but also the Dunhill Cup, again, representing uh, Australia in 2000. Given, you know, golf, it's such a solitary pursuit, isn't it? What's it like then being part of a team? It's very weird. I mean, I grew up playing team sports, baseball, soccer, um, and funnily enough, one of the reasons I chose golf over other sports was the fact that it was all up to me. Mm. If my teammates, you know, if I've had a good game, but my team played poorly, I could still lose. And I thought, well, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought in golf, it's all up to me. And then when you get in that team environment and that team aspect, it's very unusual because you don't want to let your teammates down. Yeah. And the most nervous I've ever been on the golf course was at the 2005 President's Cup. And I'm playing with Tim Clark, uh, who's a South African golfer. And it's an alternate shot format. So 
you know, I, I tee off, he hits the next one, then I hit the next one and so on. We alternate hitting shots. And as it turned out, I'm hitting the opening tee shot. He wanted to have the evens. I've got the odds. And the first hole is obviously an odd number. Yep. So I walk onto the tee and I, you know, I've got all these teammates around and I'm playing with Tim. We're playing against Phil Mickelson and Chris DeMarco. I walk on the tee and there's Gary Player, my captain, Jack Nicholas, who was my idol growing <laughs> up. Next to them is Presidents uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush Sr. And I'm standing there thinking, oh, my yeah. gosh. What is what going What am on? I doing here? This is not good. And my wow. legs started to shake. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I'd never had that. I'm thinking, my knees are shaking. That's different. <laughs> and I really felt like kind of throwing up and just getting out of there. But luckily, you know, I've, I've, I've done... I've been in those situations before, not to the extreme, but I knew what I had to do and, yep. and I got through it. But that whole team aspect is just another level of pressure. It's oh. very interesting. So, so the tee off went okay? You put yeah, it hit it right down the middle. It. Yeah, it's it was great. And then I was away. And once, once you get going, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you have had a form slump, um, what was it that, uh, that got you out of it? I mean, you uh, talk about your consistency and your mental strength, but even still you mm. always have fluctuations in how you, you're going. What, what, what was it uh, that you drew upon to get yourself back on, on, uh, on, on better footing? Funnily enough, it was more a mental thing because mm. what, what tends to happen is if you miss a couple of cuts in a row, you go, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, obviously I need to maybe tweak something here or there and that might turn into three, four. I think the worst streak I had was I missed six cuts in a row, so which is not very good at the pro level. Other guys have gone 20, 30 cuts in a row. But, you know, for me, once I got to that level, I just remember thinking, okay, I need to take a break, get away from the game, refresh, recharge the batteries. And then just get back to fundamentals because that's really what it was for me. I, I'd built a really good foundation for my game over the years. And as I said, at the start of every year, uh, I'd get together with the two Neils and we'd sort of work out a plan. So, um, you know, if things didn't go according to plan throughout the year, I'd take a step back, reassess, reevaluate, and then uh, and then work out another plan and go from there. So I just never got too far off track from what I, my, my core golfer was really. And that's what I think most people, most sports people find is they have this core set of abilities. And if they stick to those, they can, you know, develop them and, and improve on those. But if they go off on tangents too much, they can get off track really quick. Nick, one of the other things you became known for uh, was your ball marking. Mm. Um, you, you flew the flag for Australia, <laughs> I'm pleased to say, when you were uh, out and about playing golf. Uh, tell us what this, uh, this little quirky thing that you did was. Sure. Well, it was actually at the Dunhill Club, uh, Dunhill Cup when I was playing for Australia. And my wife says to me, why don't you do something patriotic on the ball? And mm. she said, how about a kangaroo? And I said, well, I can't draw a kangaroo. She's an artist, so you do it. So, so she drew it on there, showed me how to do it. And then, you know, it was great. You know, we, we played really well. And then at, after, the, after that, she started marking the golf balls and all that. And after a while, she realized, well, hang on, I've got to do two or three a dozen a week of these. <laughs> yeah. You need to learn how to do it. So it then became my thing that I, I started marking my ball uh, with a kangaroo. And, and Titleist, you know, the ball manufacturer, they yeah. ran a campaign where it was how do you mark your Titleist? And that was the, their big thing. And most people put a dot or a line. And, and when they shot the commercial, um, they were in Chicago, and I went up and they said, oh, how do you do it? You put a dot. And I said, no, I draw a kangaroo. And they're going, oh, finally, thank you. Someone with a bit of difference. So it's kind of stood out over the, over the test of time, I think. I think Jason Day puts a kangaroo on his ball as well. Does he? So he, he's the other one, yeah. But I think he does it with a stencil. I do it freehand. So that's that's, mine, a, that's a genius marketing <laughs> ploy. <Yeah. laughs> it, it is. Yeah. It's, it's genius. So I this, wish I'd have taken it further. <laughs> <laughs> so this all came about because you just had a, a, a random conversation about marking the ball and then decided to put a kangaroo on it. And all of a sudden, did you get, can I ask, did you get anything out of Titleist? For this? No, 
No, well, I, I was on a contract with them anyway, so yeah. that's fine. But, I mean, you know, when you're playing with two other guys that use Titleist, sometimes when your ball's in the rough and you're using similar markings, you go, oh, is that yours? Is it mine? Yeah. I saw the kangaroo and I instantly knew it was mine and everyone knew I marked it with a kangaroo, so it was pretty easy. Genius. Mm. Usually, usually my ball is just the furthest away from the fairway, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to pick the one that's in the worst spot. Um, no, that's a good uh, a good trick. Nick, we need to take a break, but uh, after that... After we take that break, I want to uh, find out sort of uh, about the end of your career because I know you had uh, knee surgery uh, and uh, eventually wound things down uh, in recent years. So we'll get into that after the break. Nick Ahern is our special guest and Inspiring Stories. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another Inspiring Story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Nick Ahern. Uh, Nick, take us back to 2010. Um, You were obviously still playing very much uh, competitively and full-time in 2010, but knee surgery uh, forced that uh, early closure of the, the 2010 season uh, had you had knee complications leading up to that or was it a, a fairly sudden thing no it had been a gradual process uh when i was 18 years old I, I snapped my acl playing basketball and at the time the doctor sort of said no oh, you don't really need to fix it you'll be fine you know just do your strengthening exercises because you're not going to be a pro basketballer and, and it would have been pretty brutal invasive surgery back then too wouldn't it it, it would have been yeah. yeah so they sort of kept it minimal and you know, I, it, it sort of bothered me a little bit uh, as time went on. Uh, I had a few surgeries just to clean up some loose cartilage and things like that over the years. And then in 2010, I noticed my other knee starting to get sore because uh, I'd been compensating for so long. Mm. And it just got to a point where I thought, you know what, it's starting to ache too much. It's hurting as I'm playing. Let's just get it all fixed up. And, um, yeah, I had to cut the season short. It took about... I guess six or seven or eight months off in the end. I uh, had the Lars ligament surgery, which a lot of the footballers mm. used to have, and um, and made a you know nice comeback after that. Got my had a medical exemption, uh, which you have to take when you're on the PGA Tour in the US, and and then they give you a certain amount of tournaments to regain your status. And I was able to do that the following year, so it yep. worked out okay. How are the knees now? Uh, yeah, I have no cartilage. <laughs> I mean, structurally it's sound, uh, yeah. but, uh, you know, in the end I'm going to need a knee replacement at some point and I'm just leaving that as long as possible. Oh, yeah. That sounds like, a, a again, a fairly brutal procedure. So, mm. yeah, delay that as much as you can. But obviously when you're out playing golf, you know, you clock up a few Ks on the course, don't you? You do, yeah. Well, if you hit it straight, you don't. But <laughs> if you go sideways, you can do, yeah. <laughs> Do you play with a buggy most of the time, Nick, or do you still like to uh, just to walk it around? Oh, no, I love walking. And that's a thing that, that I've really enjoyed being back in Australia. In the US where I was, you were always in a golf cart, you know, yeah. you know, just in the social club comps, you take a golf cart and it's pretty lazy over there as here. It's just walking and it's fantastic. Yeah. Do you consider yourself retired now? I always say semi-retired because I still play, I'll play the Australian Open at the end of yep. the year, the PGA, probably the Vic Open and the Perth event at the start of the year as well. So I'm not fully retired in that sense, but yeah, I I really need to, you know, do some practice, uh, mm. obviously before those events because <laughs> playing tournament golf and social golf is two just completely different animals mm. and uh and, you know, I'm still still pretty competitive. I can make the cuts and things like that. Winning is another thing that's got to be, you know, more mental than anything. So I've got to work a lot on that. But I, I just love to compete. I don't, miss, I don't miss the travel and everything, but the competition is what I miss the most. Yeah. Um, and, and in terms of keeping yourself 
at that level, I mean, how often are you playing golf? Are you playing golf most days of the week? No, no. I, I probably play once a week. Once socially. a week? Yeah, once a week, maybe twice. Uh, do a little, hit, hit a few balls here and there. But now I'm yeah. more into uh, mentoring other, other players coming up, doing some corporate golf outings and uh, yeah. sort of workshops is another thing I do for you know, more social golfers who want to get the most out of what they have. In terms of the, the differences between when you were first starting out as a pro golfer compared to now, uh, is it a similar sort of job, similar sort of challenge for the young guys coming through now? Uh, it is, but it's just more intense now, yeah. I think. You know, every sport across the board is just everyone's gotten fitter, faster, stronger, and you have to be 100% into every area. You really have to hone in on, you know, your fitness, um, the mental side, uh, the technical side, um, the nutrition, you know, everything you do in a day is basically got to be revolved around how do I get better today? And that's what I try and, you know, impress upon my, the people that I work with. Like I, my old, old philosophy was one which uh, is very similar to a mate of mine in the States. His name was Craig Johnson. He used to play for Liverpool years and years ago. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, every time I went to bed that night, I wanted to be better than when I woke up that morning. And that's sort of a philosophy that I yeah. followed as well. So I, I tell that to everyone I work with, how do you get better today? Because today's the day that counts. And if you add those days up over time, you just improve through that, having that structure. And obviously you've got to plan and, and look ahead and you know, see where you want to take that. Mm. But uh, that's a good philosophy to follow, I've, I've always found. And in terms of the, the enjoyment factor, do you, I mean, do you still get the same thrill when you put the ball down on the tee, pull out a, a, a two or three wood and just smash it down the drive, that sweet sound? <laughs> Oh that, yeah, that I happens mean, so rarely for me. But <laughs> <laughs> do you still get that same buzz when you do that, as you might have, you know, say when you were just starting to knock a ball around as a kid? I do. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating game, and that's the beauty of golf is you're never going to perfect it. And you know, there's nothing better than a purely struck shot. Yeah, and there's nothing better than just experimenting and trying different things. So, I mean, I'm a left-handed golfer, but the last three years I've been putting right-handed, and that, I mean, I'm loving putting, it, loving putting again because I was putting poorly at the time left-handed. I used yeah. a, a long broomstick putt in my yep. whole career. I actually think I've made the biggest putting change in the history of golf because yeah. I went from a long left-handed putter to a short right. I mean, you can't get a bigger change than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it came about by accident. You know, I'm a, I played nine holes for fun right-handed, and I actually am run, right-handed. I, I throw right, uh, play tennis right, but I, everything two hands, I do left. And I putted fantastic this day, and I thought, oh, that's what I've been missing. So I, now I just putt right-handed, and I, I putt better than I ever have. It's great. <laughs> there you I go. I wish I'd have done it years ago. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe your career will uh, go back into full-time mode again. <laughs> Nick, you'll be, uh, you'll be back in Florida and conquering the world stage. Um, can no. I ask, do you see a, a time in the future when you will become a social golfer, a corporate golfer, and give the pro stuff away? Um. Probably, yeah, when I'm not competitive here in Australia. I mean, right. I don't want to take a place away from one of the young guys coming through. But I know I can still compete now. And there's always the Champions Tour that goes on now when you reach 50. I'm, a, I'm a two or three years away from that at the moment. So, you know, that might be something to look at when my kids have finished school and, and, uh, and give another go. Uh, yep. But no, I, I love to compete and I love those tournaments. And, you know, it's still on my, on my, my list of to-do is to win an Australian Open. That's the one tournament yeah. I've always wanted to win, and I've come so close so many times. So yep. it'd be nice to check that one off at some point. Well, we'll be, uh, we'll be barracking for you, Nick. Just, just lastly, outside of golf, what is it that brings you joy and fulfillment outside of golf? 
Oh, it's family, basically. Yeah. You know, my wife, my kids. Uh, my wife has a burgeoning um, art career going on, and being in Melbourne is going to be great. You know, mm. the kids growing up, getting them through school. I get to take them to school every morning. Sometimes I can pick them up, sometimes I can't. But it's just that to me is just you know is awesome because I miss so much of their young lives when I was travelling. Um, and then outside of that, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I love my wine and you know experiencing different <laughs> foods and things like that. So there's plenty to. Uh, Plenty to try here in Melbourne, that's for sure. And the coffee here is just phenomenal as well. So it doesn't get much better. Don't settle in there too much, Nick. We'll no, get you I back over in the West soon. <laughs> and we'll get you to some uh, Frio Dockers games as well. Yes. <laughs> Nick, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your stories with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR with uh, professional golfer Nick O'Hearn. Everyone has a story to tell. Uh, this one, of course, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.